Our scripture reading is from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. This is God's word. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Father, we come into your presence, the one who calls us to himself and meets with us and comes to us through your word given. Oh Lord, with the psalmist, we pray that you would make us to know your ways, that you would teach us your paths, that you would lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you, we wait all the day long. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Don't you, uh, don't you just love it when, <clears throat> when a word comes with its own definition? That's my favorite kind of word. Like the one, uh, the word of the day for us today. The word safe keeping. You've got a general idea, maybe a specific idea of what that means. It, it refers to protecting or guarding an object, typically. Like a family heirloom maybe comes to your mind, or perhaps a fine piece of jewelry, or maybe a plate of Christmas cookies that are stashed on top of the refrigerator to stay away from little hungry hens until the time is right for those to be had. There's nothing like a cookie out of the oven, I get that, but there's a time to keep Something like that for a special occasion as well. In my grandmother's home in East Tennessee, when you walked into her living room, <clears throat> if you were an adult, about eye level in the corner of the room was a set of shelves. And at eye level, there was a glass-cut, carefully-cut, shiny egg that was... It was out of the reach of little hands like mine as her grandson. And I know about that egg because there were times when my grandmother would carefully supervise and scrutinize and allow me to hold in my little hands that shiny cut glass egg. It was a lot heavier than I supposed it would be. She had it out of uh, my reach most of the time because he was, she wasn't quite sure what sort of impact it would, it would endure were it to come to some sort of collision with the floor at my doing. She had the egg in safekeeping. Now, there's probably a physicist or two, maybe even among us, that could could take the, uh, the height of that little three-inch egg, the weight and the distance, and figure out what kind of impact that egg would have sustained. Uh, run some a few experiments to determine. But she was just being careful of something that 
was extremely important to her. She grew up in the Depression. And this was one, as I've thought about it in recent years, one of the indicators is that God has brought us through this. And it represented something to her. It probably came inside a box, in a box, a box inside a box, wrapped in tissue paper. If it were today, it would be wrapped several times in bubble wrap, no doubt. But that safeguarding, that safekeeping, raises a question that comes to us out of our text today. And that is, what about you? Or more particularly, what about your faith? Or what about what the New Testament refers to as our walk with Christ? What kind of impact can it withstand? What would it take? Would it, would it take the impact? Would it, does it have enough strength to endure the impact of the struggle that you and I know all too well? Or maybe it's the chronic inconsistency. Do you know what that is? Yes. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's even the sporadic infidelity to Christ. What kind of packaging would come with your faith that would endure? You know, when our love is weak and faint, like it often is, it doesn't take much for a cloud of discouragement to settle in. Like a cold front that moves in and all you see from one horizon to the next are dark clouds. You know, we celebrate Advent here these weeks together, rightly and purposefully. The Advent that we celebrate and we mark is because light has entered a darkness. There's darkness all around when Christ comes into this world. But it's not just darkness around. There's a degree of darkness within that Paul's words address today. You know, waiting is hard, but darkness makes it harder. There are things that we call, or the world calls, character flaws that we just cannot seem to change. There's what the Bible calls, rightly, besetting, indwelling sin that we cannot seem to shake. And those things leave us with a haunting of sorts. Maybe a haunting like, Scrooge was haunted by Marley's ghost. How's this going to end? Where is this headed? And I wonder with you today, if one of the reasons that we don't think about Christ's second coming, the way we celebrate his first, is that we're not sure how it will turn out. We're really not sure Maybe even that it's true, but how will it end? What will that be like? Well, that's what Paul has on his heart and mind and wants to bring to people that, like you, have gathered in a room to hear a letter read. That's how this worked. First Thessalonians was most likely the very first letter that Paul, epistle that Paul wrote. It was delivered by Timothy, and it was read to a gathered body like this. In their case, believers facing persecution. 
in our case, believers with the same sort of sets of questions about how will this end. And here's what he tells us. With these two verses, Paul tells you and me that regardless of your current status or performance scorecard, every one of you who waits with true faith can know that your finish is certain and it is good. That's what he tells us. It's in the form of a prayer. And in Paul's prayer, in these two verses, he answers these questions that that I have and perhaps you as well. What is it required to finish? How do we, what is required to finish? Why can we have confidence? And how are we to live in that light? What is required to finish? Why can we have confidence? And how are we to live in that light? First, what is required to finish? Look at Paul's prayer, verse 23, when he prays that you would be kept blameless. That's a status. That's what's required to finish. A status that he calls blameless. Yeah. And maybe you, like me, are thinking of something that you read or heard in the Old Testament. It's actually Psalm 24 where we would read these words. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The line starts here. We read those words and we think, yeah, that's the problem. As we read and confessed moments ago, our sin is always before us. And Paul says we need to be blameless. He doesn't suggest a reasonable amount of holiness is what is required. Blameless is a fairly tall order. It's taller than me. It's taller than you. It's taller than any of us. It's more than any of us bring to the table. This is how Paul put it in, a, in, a, in another letter that he wrote after this one. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So take those two. Wrap those together. And you get a definition. Blameless and guiltless. Neither one are suggesting that the requirement is without sin because we can't get there on our own. We are with sin. That's what we bring to the table. And we need someone who is without sin who would then be for us blameless, making us guiltless. That's the gospel right there. But that's just where he starts. He starts with what is required, a status of blameless. But it's more and deeper and longer than that. There's something else that's required, and that is what I'm going to call a surety. We need a surety, something that, is, that does keep us in that status, in that condition. The word that he, he uses, he, he prays that you, friends, that we would be kept blameless. You hear the difference? There's a continuity to it. There's some movement. There's some ongoingness to being kept. 
That it's not a moment in time and it's not a, a door you walk through. It is a condition which becomes yours and you're kept there. It means to preserve. Some of you have read, and if you haven't, I hope you will one day read John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, where, where he describes the one who, who leaves to, to seek and, uh, and, to, and to reach the destiny, uh, his destiny of the celestial city. And if you haven't read it, I will go ahead and tell you that Pilgrim arrives. But as Pilgrim arrives, it's through twists and turns and decisions and an aid that he receives along the way, but Pilgrim arrives just like Paul prays. And do you know why Pilgrim arrives? Do you know why you can begin to believe and to own that you too will arrive? It's because of that one who was blameless, who took upon our guilt. And it is to him that by faith you are united. That's the gospel message that comes through our New Testament. Are you united to him? So that what is true about him is true about you. And what that means, it's not tissue paper. It's not spiritual bubble wrap. It's the heart of the Father. You are wrapped and enfolded in the bosom of the Father. That is how you are kept for that day. What's required to finish a status of blamelessness, a surety of self-keeping that is ours? Why can we have that kind of confidence? And that's what Paul prays. Look at his prayer again with me. I pray that you, friends, that the God himself, God of peace himself, would sanctify you completely. The reason that we can have this confidence is the thoroughness of God's sanctifying work. There's two aspects of that we'll look at in just a moment. But it's the thoroughness of God's sanctifying work. Now, sanctification, that's not a word that comes with its own definition. So let me unpack that a little bit for you. The word simply means to be set apart, to be set apart for his purposes. You, by faith, are in another category. It's a category called mine. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's where you reside. You were set apart. Our, our catechism, the shorter catechism, has a helpful unfolding of this as well when we read the sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby are we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live into righteousness. But that sanctification is a work of whose? God's free grace. We participate in that. We engage in that. We lean into it. We, we pursue it. But it's God's work. 
That's why he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Here are the two aspects of it. The extent and the fullness of God's sanctifying work. Look at verse 23 again. I want to say, he prays that God would sanctify your whole spirit, soul, and body. You hear him stretching? <laughs> he, he's reaching in every direction. That's what he's doing there. He, he's, not, he's not suggesting particularly that we are made of three parts, three components, any more than in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he suggests we're made of two when he refers to the body and the spirit. Or in the great commandment where God himself and Jesus repeats it, that, we, that it's not our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not that we have four components. All, all three of those efforts are rhetorical ways of saying all of you, every part of you, every aspect of you, so that one could say that the complete mending of all human imperfection is not only possible, but it is certain. That's what's going on there. You know why that's good news? It's because most of us don't have trouble thinking of one or two areas of our lives that just don't seem to work. Of all the things that God calls us to be and do, there may be some things that you feel like, well, I, I, yeah, I, I'm on to that one. I'm on to that one. But this and that, oh, I don't know. It's 40 years and that's still an issue. Speaking personally. It's 40 years. That's still an issue. But Paul's prayer is that it's for everything, including the things that we think we have down, which we don't actually have down, <laughs> even those, and the ones that we know we struggle with, all of those, every piece of it, it's the extent and the fullness of what God is up to in you. It's the whole man, so that he says completely, or one another translation says entirely, another one says through and through. That's the good news embedded in this, that God's work of renewing you and me touches every aspect of who we are. That's the extent of the fullness. But there's one more feature to God's thorough sanctifying work, and that is its duration. It endures. It doesn't get you halfway to the goal line and then boost you the rest of the way. It's never, I've done my part, now it's your turn. It's never, I will get you to a certain date in your life, and then from there, it's for you to finish this race. No, God is carrying you over the finish line, is what is, is the impact of this. It's the day of Christ Jesus that we would be blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. That day, that day, that that. Next Advent, not the one that we celebrate right here, but the one that comes. It's to that day. It's that long. It is that enduring. And guess what? Beyond that. <laughs> it's like, you know, the guy that scores a touchdown and he, and he runs to the end zone and then he sees the, 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 the runway and he just keeps right on running. 
It's that kind of endurance. It's, it's all the way. That's what he has pledged and promised. That's what Paul prays for. So that as he said earlier in this same letter, which we haven't read, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's simply taking what he asserted earlier in the letter and roots it in this prayer at the conclusion of this letter. So that as we wait, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain, who will make sure you until the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can have confidence. Because of the extent and the fullness of his sanctifying work and the duration. It doesn't end. Well, there's one more reason that we can have confidence. It's the thoroughness of God's sanctifying work, but it's also the strength of God's unchanging character. Look at verse 24 with me. He who calls you is faithful. You know what that word means. That means reliable. It means dependable. You can bank on it because it is him. He calls you. And when he calls, he calls. We know, brothers, he says earlier in that passage, in that book, loved by God, he has chosen you. God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He is the one who calls you. And what is he like? He's reliable. He's faithful. He is worthy of our trust. John Calvin, I love this, says, God is always like himself. <laughs> He's always like himself. Is there anything God cannot do? You know what the answer is? Yes, there is. There are things that God cannot do. He cannot be untrue to his character. He cannot be unfaithful. He doesn't issue promises and then redistribute them. His call upon you, when he called you by name, he called you to himself, and with that, gave you himself. And he is faithful. He is faithful when we are not. He is faithful when we are inconsistent. He is faithful, and he will do it. Stand under this waterfall just for a moment of God's word, his own self revelation of who he is and what he is doing. Just listen to these words. Exodus 31, I pray that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Deuteronomy 7, know that the Lord your God is the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. 1 Corinthians 1, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Philippians 1 I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul has that 
second coming in mind right there that we anticipate today. And what that means for us, friends, is he can be trusted. He is faithful. He is worthy of your trust. And here's my question. Do you? Are you trusting him? Or if not, will you? Will you trust the one who is faithful? Because he will do it. I love what um, David Pryor, a commentator, says about this parallel passage I've referred to once or twice in 1 Corinthians 1. Read that later. Write that down. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8. I've cited it a couple times. Here's what David Pryor says about that passage, which is true about this one. See if you don't hear 1 Thessalonians 5 in these words. God's faithfulness extends to that day and beyond it into the fullness of eternity. He will keep His people guiltless or blameless in that day. When the secrets of men's hearts are disclosed and we might have had legitimate fear of being found guilty before Him, God will ensure that absolutely no charge or accusation is laid against His people, whether by human beings or by Satan, the great accuser of the brethren. On that day it will be plain to all that it is God who justifies and that those whom He has justified, He has also in the self-same act glorified. It is Jesus who matters on that day. It is His day. He calls the tune. He determines the issues. Because we have been called to share in Jesus, we share in His supremacy on that day. We are not under judgment for sin on that day. We've introduced another word now that may need some definition. Glorified. That glorified, that is when you have been transformed, that we have been transformed from fallen human that we are into the very image of Christ our Lord. Paul tells us that when we, as we behold His face, we are transformed. That's how the change occurs. When we see Christ, we are transformed. And that doesn't wait until that day. That happens today. That happens now when we, when we see Christ with the eyes of faith coming to us through His Word proclaimed and celebrated at the table. When we see Christ, when we take hold of that, and though we see dimly, there will be one day when we see face to face. And when we see face to face, we will be changed. Now that stretches my imagination and yours too. But that is the truth that God's Word declares Someone said about sanctification, it's glorification begun. It's already begun. Your glorification has begun. It's called sanctification right now. And it has twists and turns and ups and downs. And yes, we struggle. But we struggle with hope and we struggle with purpose. And we struggle into something that is grand and glorious. That God lays in front of us and says, this is yours and you are mine. So how do we live in light of this? 
Well, just three quick points. One is we look to Jesus in faith. Everything that I've said so far, Paul's prayer is for those who were wrapped in Christ. We have to look to Christ. We have to, we have to look to him with the eyes of faith and take hold of him because we can't change ourselves. Because our sin is always before us. And it is deep within us and explains the darkness that marks our lives in this world. So we look to him in faith. And then we pray with strong confidence. Remember, this is a prayer. Paul's prayer then becomes yours to use these words to pray for yourself and for one another. We pray our way with confidence because we need it. Uh, One commentator about this passage says this, when the love of God is not a present reality to us, ever been there? When the love of God is not a present reality to us, we need to take this medicine three times a day after meals until our spiritual appetite begins to pick up and we begin to respond in awe to God's overwhelming grace. We pray with strong confidence but that these truths would take root in our lives and would bear fruit. We look to him in faith. We pray with strong confidence. And finally, we wait with steady resolve. That's the impact of of Paul's prayer. He prays earlier in this book that, that we would always be, that we would be inwardly strengthened now to view Christ's return as a as a motivation to holiness. And it is. Not fearful but anticipating and wanting to be. You know, we've said this before. One of the things that happens when God begins a work in you, you begin to want to want the will of God. You begin to want to want it. And that wanting is what does this work from the inside out so that what God declares to be true to you eventually one day will be fully true in you. It's not a false narrative. It's not false Legal fiction. It's not legal fiction. That that you are declared righteous and you become sanctified and even glorified. That's his pledge to you. There's something underneath all of this, though, that explains what Paul is praying. It's what Peter calls a living hope. That you, in Christ, have an inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Who by God's power, do you hear it? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. You have an inheritance that awaits you but you're not the only one. You see, Jesus has an inheritance. And it's you. God is keeping you for the fullness of this redemptive story as it unfolds. And that's why Paul prays what he does. That's why Christ is our certain hope, what what Peter calls a living hope. 
as the Father has promised a son, his son, a people for his own inheritance. Jesus anticipates that. As we wait for his coming, he anticipates something grand and glorious, and it's his inheritance. He comes for you. Hear it from his own words, from his own lips when he says in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me and raise it up on the last day. That's the deal. That's the gospel. That's the coming advent. On that day, we are his. He is ours. It's why Paul can pray what he does and say to a people, regardless of your current status or your performance scorecard, that you can know and be certain that you will finish and it will be good. Father, would you stretch our hearts to take hold of that? For that truth to take root in us. That it would have its intended effect and that is to cause us to look to you with the eyes of faith. To pray with a bold confidence. And to wait upon you. And then we will continue to look and anticipate and consider that the coming of Christ again into this world, not to save us from our sin, but to take us to himself, is our great joy and delight. Oh Lord, would we fix our eyes on that as you fix your eyes on us in love. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.